So loving Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth that in Jesus Christ you will hold us fast until the day he returns and calls us home. And so, Father, we pray now as we come to your word that by your spirit you might speak to us. You might speak to our hearts, soften them, that we might receive what you have to say. Open our deaf ears that we might hear your words this evening. And by your spirit be at work in our lives that we might put them into practice in the days ahead. That we might be people who through our very lives Bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and please keep your Bibles uh, open at Exodus 20. Last week, I was away at a conference, and very kindly, um, a member of the church where the conference was taking place had agreed to let me stay in his house. I'd never met my host, uh, and indeed, I didn't meet him last week. He was away, but his house was available. Two days before I left Nottingham, I received an email from him. Attached was a document with two A4 sides of guidelines for staying in his house. They were comprehensive, with instructions about uh, where I could and could not wear my slippers, uh, how to use the TV and access the Wi-Fi, how the shower worked, and how many showers the water tank would permit before it needed time to refill. There was a full description of the kitchen, with the details of what I could find in each and every cupboard, and an assessment of the firmness of each of the mattresses in the three bedrooms uh, so that I could choose the bed most suited to my requirements. Perhaps rather ominously, the document closed with this line. In an emergency, my neighbor should be able to help you. He is a retired police chief superintendent. A few hours later, I received another email with further instructions, including how many speed bumps I would encounter before arriving at the house. And when I finally did enter the house, there on the coffee table was another note with further instructions. What's interesting is that I never met my host, but I feel like I know something of who he is. I know some of what he cares about, some of the things that matter to him. I have some insight, I think, into his personality, into the kind of guy that he is. We recognize, don't we, that, that when we visit someone's house, when we enter their space, the rules they have and the, the norms that they want you to follow, well, well, those regulations reveal something, something of who they are, something of their priorities. And as we enter the, the second half of the book of Exodus, uh, we are going to encounter rules, lots of them. We've read what, what we now know as the Ten Commandments already, but, but they act as headlines for, for many more detailed and, and specific laws 
that God gave to his people, the ancient Israelites. I want us to see as we encounter those laws today, as we read these passages in the second half of Exodus, uh, that they are revealing to us more of who our God is. As we see what he is concerned with, as we see how he rules and, and orders his place, we will gain an insight into his heart. The things that matter most to him, the things he'd like to matter most to his people as they live in his place. Holiness, justice, compassion, care, and provision. As you read through these laws, those are the things that stand out. But it's more than that. You know, after my my first night in that house last week, I received a text from my host. Just checking that everything's okay, he said. Is the house warm enough? Is there enough hot water? I'm sorry I didn't leave much for breakfast. And that's when it struck me. I wonder if I was too hard on this man. I dismissed him as a, as a house-proud, uptight, rules kind of guy. But actually, at the heart of his lists of guidelines and instructions was a concern for me. That I would be comfortable in his home. That I would be well cared for. And that I would make the most of my time in his house. And actually, you know what? I wouldn't have been able to turn off the lights without his instructions. And I do care about how soft the mattress is. And I'd certainly never been able to turn off the burglar alarm. His police chief superintendent neighbour would definitely have been around then. Now those rules, they did reveal something of my host's character and concern, but, but they were also there for my good. To make my time in his place better, more comfortable, more satisfying. We need to realise that there's something similar going on with the laws that we find in Exodus. They do reveal something of God, of his character and his priorities. But he's not a, a harsh disciplinarian arbitrarily dishing out rules and, and regulations just because he can. No. These laws were also designed for the good of the ancient Israelites. To enable them to, to live in God's place to make the most of, of their time in this, his creation. To show them what it looks like to flourish in God's world. And not just on an individual basis, but to flourish as a society, as a people. God is concerned for his holiness and glory. And he is concerned for his people. For their good and their flourishing. For a just and, and right society. For a caring and compassionate community. That's what we see in the, in the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with the relationship the ancient Israelites were to have with their God. He was to be their only God. They were not to worship others alongside him, nor to count the created things that he'd given them as equal to the creator. They were to bear his name the people of Yahweh, well, 
to remember that they were his ambassadors to a lost and hurting world. And they were to rest in him. To weakly recognize their utter dependence on him by ceasing from all their striving. But notice at the end of that fourth command, notice that it's about more than simply honoring God. Keeping the Sabbath would have implications for the whole community. Verse 10. On the Sabbath, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. The Sabbath brought rest for all. It was about honoring God and about caring for people. And that pivot becomes all the clearer as we read on to the end of the commandments. The final six are all about the relationships the ancient Israelites were to have between themselves, within their new community. They were about establishing a a functioning, fair and, and flourishing community. And that continues on into the next few chapters. As the Ten Commandments are are fleshed out, if you like, with with more everyday examples. Yes, there are reiterations of the instructions for worship. Do not make idols. Do not blaspheme. Do not hold back offerings. Keep the Sabbath. Celebrate the feasts. Worship the Lord your God. But many of the laws focus on the relationships within the community. Between Israelite and Israelite. What should happen if if someone causes an injury or a death? What if their property is damaged? What if their livestock is wounded or killed? What we see is, is the Lord establishing a community that is so far removed from their experience as slaves in Egypt. There, they were subject to exploitation and abuse. The powerful use their position for their own gain, to the cost of those beneath them. But here, we're here amongst the people of Yahweh, the weak, the vulnerable. They were to be protected and cared for. Those who had were were not to exploit those who had not. The Lord intended the experience of of living in ancient Israel to be a contrast to what they'd known under Pharaoh is explicitly brought out towards the end of chapter 22. There we read these words from verse 21. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless, If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You see, Yahweh is a God who takes justice and compassion seriously. And he expects his people to do the same. 
They are not to take advantage of those in need. They are not to exploit the poor or the vulnerable. This is to be a community that is marked by care and compassion. Why? Well, because that's what God's like, yes, but also because that will be what is best for the people. Having known oppression at the hands of Pharaoh, the ancient Israelites were to know provision and care, security and flourishing in the hands of Yahweh, their God. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking. What about the more awkward laws that we see in these chapters? If you read through, you'll, you'll find instructions concerning slavery, bride prices, differing treatment for women compared to men, how does all of that stack up with a God of, of justice and compassion? Well, friends, we need to see that, that these laws, in fact, are precisely the response of a righteous and compassionate God to a sin-filled and fallen world. These chapters do not present God's ideal for human life. Rather, they present his gracious mitigation for a world that has been dragged so far from its creator's perfection that the effects of sin are felt in each and every part of life. These laws presuppose that the ancient Israelites will daily be experiencing the realities of a world, of a society that is shot through with sin and wrongdoing, and evil. There would be no need to outline a sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins if the people would never transgress God's laws. There would be no need to, to specify the punishment and restitution required after a theft if theft never occurred. So often, these laws show us how our loving God intends to limit the damage caused by sin in ancient Israelite society and to ensure that the vulnerable are protected, to accept the, the realities of life in a fallen world and to mitigate the results without ever actually condoning sinful behavior. Take the famous law found in chapter 21, verse 24. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So often today, those words are used to excuse petty, tit-for-tat revenge. And yet in their context here, they implore God's people to the very opposite. To be restrained and proportionate in their desire for restitution. Not to see the wrongdoing of another as an excuse for spiteful retribution in response. And so too the laws concerning slaves and women take into account the realities of the Bronze Age world in which life was hard. The threat of violence from animals or invaders was real. And the strength required simply to cultivate the land such that it produced sufficient food was significant. 
In that world, those without means of their own, those who were vulnerable or weak, they needed protection. They needed provision. In the absence of a welfare state, to be taken into a household where the master followed these laws, where the master was kind and compassionate, that would be to find a place of safety and security, to find hope and a future. Indeed, is that not a beautiful picture of the aim and the end of the gospel of God? Not personal, individual, proud independence, but rather utterly dependent inclusion in the household of the one who is master over all of us. There is nothing in these verses that condones or excuses the abhorrent abuses of the transatlantic slave trade of later centuries. Now, these laws are about caring and protecting, providing and defending. Just read with me now the, the beginning of chapter 23 and see how the Lord calls his people to act in the reality of a fallen world, to act with justice, kindness, and compassion. Chapter 23, verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. For you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. These laws were rooted in the past experience of the Hebrew people. Oppressed and abused in ancient Egypt. They were designed to, to shape and soften their present experience of a sin-filled world mandating compassion and justice in the name of a compassionate and just God. And these laws point forward, forward to a future experience where such mitigations will not be necessary, a future where sin will no longer stalk the experience of human life, a future where humanity will live in close personal communion with the God who is pure truth and love, righteousness and compassion. You see, we must remember that these laws were given in the context of relationship, given by a saviour God who had already rescued, 
given by a redeeming Lord who intended to shape his people. You know, maybe one day I will meet the owner of that house I stayed in last week. And if I do, well, then I will know him much more fully. Sure, his rules and and his guidelines have given me some insight into who he is. But they're nothing compared with meeting the man himself. But the ancient Israelites didn't have to try and piece together an accurate picture of their God simply from his instructions. No. Because these commands are bookended by two accounts of Yahweh coming to meet his people. We heard from chapter 19 last week and we read chapter 24 this evening. And they are awesome accounts of God come close. But I wonder if you noticed. Even as the elders of Israel ascended the mountain, even as they ate and drank in his presence, even as Moses enjoyed a personal audience with Yahweh himself, even then these meetings were not all that they could be. Twice in the closing verses of chapter 24, we're reminded that these meetings were temporary. First for for six days, then for 40, but not forever. The sovereign Lord, in his kindness, made it possible for Moses, the mediator, to spend some time in his presence. But even within the book of Exodus, there's there's a longing for a more permanent proximity. A settled coexistence of God and his people, living day by day, side by side. That's part of what the the tabernacle was all about, which we'll read of in the coming chapters. But also within the bigger story of God's great redemption plan, we must realize that these ancient Israelites inhabited a fundamentally different moment in salvation history than we do today. And that was marked by their temporary fleeting encounters with their saviour God. Their old covenant, written on tablets of stone, would one day give way to a new covenant. This time written on the very hearts of God's people. And with it came an astonishing transformation. Friends, no longer are we confronted by the awesome power of our God as he momentarily draws near. No, rather today, that awesome power lives within us. Each and every day. As by his spirit, our holy God has made us his dwelling place. listen to how the the fourth century theologian Augustine put it as he contrasted the events of Sinai with those that would take place centuries later in Jerusalem at Pentecost. He says, notice how it happened there and how it happened here. There, the people stood a long way off. There was an atmosphere of dread, not love. I mean, they were so terrified that they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, but do not let the Lord speak to us lest we die. 
So God came down, as it is written, on Sinai in fire. But he was terrifying the people who stood a long way off and writing with his finger on stone, not on the heart. Here, however, when the Holy Spirit came, the faithful were gathered together as one. And he didn't terrify them on a mountain, but came to them in a house. There came a sudden sound, indeed from heaven, as of a fierce squall rushing upon them. It made a noise, but nobody panicked. You have heard the sound, now see the fire too, because each was there on the mountain also, both fire and sound. But there, there was smoke as well. Here, though, the fire was clear. There appeared to them, the scripture says, you see, divided tongues as of fire. Terrifying them from a long way off. Far from it. Because it settled upon each one of them. And they began to talk in languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Hear a person talking a language and understand the Spirit writing. Not on stone. But on the heart. Brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference. How we now know our God. How we now experience his presence among us is totally, radically, wonderfully different to how our ancestors did back then. And so too is our relationship to this law. Not because God has changed, He hasn't, but because Christ has come. You see, the people of ancient Israel did not, could never keep those laws. Indeed, uh, these laws served only to highlight just how far they were from being the people God desired, from living his way, from flourishing in his world. Generation after generation failed to obey failed to do everything the Lord had said. Until, that is, the true and greater Israel came. Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience to every last detail of God's good law. Not just to the letter, but also to the spirit of the law. Perfectly showing what it looks like to live as a human. Relating as he should to his father God. Perfectly showing what it looks like to live as a human. Relating as he should to those around him. Holy and righteous. Kind and compassionate. As we today seek relationship with the holy God of this universe, we are no longer bound by the requirements of these laws. We could never keep them anyway. But he has. He has kept them all on our behalf. 
And we now relate to our God through him, through the better, through the perfect mediator. So every time you break God's law, Tim Chester says, remember this. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's will for you. Say to yourself, the law I've just broken, Jesus kept on my behalf. The Father has put you in Jesus and he treats you as Jesus' record deserves. And so the verdict he writes across your life is, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Just as he said to Jesus. Righteous in Christ, empowered by his spirit and loved by his father. Today, you can begin again to do God's will. And tomorrow. And the next day. Friends, let us read these words, spoken to Moses, given to the people at Sinai, and let us see our holy God making a way for his people. Let us see our compassionate Father holding back the devastation of sin. Let us see our perfect mediator living a life of obedience in our stead. Let us see our precious Savior paying the price for our transgression. And let us see our risen Lord ruling and reigning right now by his Spirit in our hearts. That we might live lives of justice and righteousness, of compassion and care. That we might be the people of Yahweh. Not because we are bound by the law, but rather because we are set free by Christ's obedience. Almighty God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, that is indeed our prayer this evening. That you might open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your law. We thank you that you are a God who cares what happens in his creation. A God who desires his people to flourish, to enjoy his creation, to live as you intended us. And so we thank you, God, for your law, your law which shows so much of your character, your care, your compassion, your heart for the vulnerable, for those in need, your love for your people. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we see the law giver become the law keeper. We thank you that he lived 
the life we could never live, perfectly obeying every part of your law. And we thank you that now, through his obedience, we are free to live lives that please you. Thank you that through Christ we may draw near to you. Still that same great holy God. And yet we may come not in trembling and fear. But with great joy and great confidence in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Almighty God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Amen.